Hello everyone and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. I'm Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Good morning everyone. Gail, you were resuming your writing weeks the last time we spoke. Mm. I hope it's still going swimmingly. Fiona, I did a Fiona Mm -hmm. and I got up early this morning and my vision was that I would spend the time writing and I got completely distracted by my day job. Okay. Um, and I have realized this is a real danger that I face that, you know, you, you go, okay, I'll quickly check the emails and then, oh my goodness, I better respond to this quickly before the day gets on. Mm. And I've seen this even when I don't get up early, but I think if I have any plans to do getting up early writing, which I don't really, it was the unique circumstances of today, but if I did it, it would be a real, I've, I've got to make an effort to close down that day job thinking in order to get to the writing properly. But otherwise, I have been pretty slow and steady building my onion, adding to that book. How's your week gone? It's gone according to plan in as much as I've been uh, waking up early, getting my 300 words done per project. And I'm now realizing that, especially if I'm working on more than one thing at a time, 300 words a day can be a bit bitty. I can lose momentum and I can lose sight of the bigger picture. I'm just thinking, you know, what three or four paragraphs am I going to write now Mm. to fill the 300 words so that I can tick it off? Mm. And, you know, lately I seem to have a lot of questions and not many answers. So I'm going to throw it to you and ask, is, is this a problem you've ever encountered? And if so, how have you dealt with it? So I don't work on two projects at once. I do in the sense that I'm always writing a Katie Gale with Kate Sidley. Mm -hmm. But because I am not the lead writer on the Katie Gales, I have quite a different function in that creative process. So because I don't work on more than one project at a time, I've got no advice for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, And one of the things I admire about you is the way you can do this. So I'm a bit distressed because I would like a time travel book and a witch cozy mystery and (laughs) and maybe something new and all at once, please. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of things that you're reading or watching or listening to, what has been filling up the well this week? Okay, so I'm going to go off on a strange tangent. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to talk about anything I've been consuming. I'm going to talk about a weirdly major part of my day, Mm -hmm. which is word games on my phone. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who does Wordle first thing in the morning. I do it when I remember and not every day. Every day, first thing in the morning, I have a friend that we have to swap scores with. Wordle is a very important part of my day and not getting the Wordle is a very big deal in my life. And then I have discovered, and the reason I want to talk about this is just because it's added, I feel like it's added something. There's a game called ClickWord, mm-hmm. and it's a bit like Scrabble on your screen. Um, and I have got into a weird thing with a friend where we are quite competitive about our average scores. Um, and you start out the first time you play, you get a score of like a hundred and you think, will I ever get 200? And now my friend and I don't feel like we've achieved anything if we're under 500, but I find it like a, a plan when I'm going to do it. And it's a strangely rich moment in my day when I'm engaging my brain in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad when it's done. 
So mm-hmm. I put it off, mm-hmm. but I want to do it while my brain's still bright enough to get that 500 score. And then I'm sad when it's over. And I just wonder, you know, do you have anything like that, that, that feels like a special little piece of your day, but it's a totally different use of your brain? I think for me, it's my daily walk. Oh, yes. um, I've also pushed it as close to the end of the day as I possibly can because I don't want it to be over and done with. But, you know, when I'm actually walking in the dark, I realize I've pushed it a bit <laughs> too far here in Joburg. Uh, but, yeah, it's just that putting the brain into neutral and being outside and breathing fresh air. And it's it's just a kind of mental reset and a, a little reward for having accomplished things in the day. And it sounds like this word game is the same for you. Yeah, I think I think in a way it is exactly that, although I also do love a walk. <laughs> Fiona, what have you been consuming this week? Uh, I think I mentioned before that I was reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, and I believe I'll finish it today. It's got me thinking about uh, repurposing existing books for mm. the modern context because it is a kind of retelling of um, Dickens's David mm. Copperfield, and it's you know, I read David Copperfield a very long time ago mm. and don't remember it very well. But I can see that she's taking incidents and characters and finding modern equivalents mm. for them. Um, like the, the despicable character of U- Uriah Heep is called U-Haul something because he, <laughs> he drives a U-Haul, but otherwise is a very similar loathsome character. And it, it's just fun to see how she's mm. doing it because I have myself repurposed a book for the the modern context and I have a daughter who's studying uh, neo-Victorian fiction and is very much in that studying that space Mm. of repurposing existing classic works for the modern context and uh, it's just fun and interesting to see how it's done and to see how plotting can be based on something that already exists. And there is that whole spate of Jane Austen rewrites. I don't, I can't remember if we've spoken about them or not. I think we did off mic. I'm going to recommend, as I always do to you, that for me, the best one of those was the Curtis Sittenfeld eligible, which is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, I want to say. And it's mm-hmm. just, she does it very cleverly. Instead of just telling the story again, she repurposes it completely for a modern world. And it sounds very similar in a way to Demon Copperfield in that way having not read a word of Demon Copperfield. But please read Eligible. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today I know has repurposed manuscripts. He's taken plays and rewritten them as novels. And for all we know, he might have done the same in reverse. We'll ask him about all that. I can't wait to have a chat with him. Our guest today is Craig Higginson, multi-award winning playwright and novelist. Craig is the author of Embodied Laughter, The Hill, Last Summer, The Landscape Painter, The Dream House, The White Room, The Book of Gifts, and a new novel that is coming out in September. Hi, Craig. Welcome and thank you for your time. Hi, lovely to be here. Craig, that list is making me feel a little <laughs> bit exhausted on your behalf. Um, you really are quite a prolific writer. I'm very old. <laughs> I just don't look as you know, I'm much older than I look really it's 492 <laughs> so, so as a 492 year old tell us how has your writing week been so I've just been down in uh, the Midlands 
uh, with my daughter. We built a little cottage there, sort of just after lockdown. So I was there for a few days, and it was supposed to be this writing retreat where I was going to go and write and paint and do all these things. And of course, I just end up doing the garden and talking to the guy about the gate and stuff like that, and do much more writing actually when I don't have time to write. I mean, my life's impossible. But I did manage to do a little bit of writing. I've been writing um, some poems. So I, towards the end of last year, I had a couple of months where I just wrote almost every day a poem. I just had this moment where I think I'd finished the, the, the new novel and I wasn't ready to start a new novel and another new novel. And, um, and I just had lots of things driving through Johannesburg at that particular time. It just suddenly felt like I needed to yeah, write about that. So it was quite nice because I, you know, sort of come back to poetry. That's how I started writing at about the age of 19. I had no idea that you wrote poetry. And are you seriously putting together a collection now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably got about 50-something poems. Sure. But I'm probably going to cut, I'll just do the, the ones that I like the best. So I'll probably cut that almost in half, maybe 25, 30 poems. And some of them are a little bit longer. Some of them have got narratives, sort of narrative poems mm-hmm. of, a, of a, a few pages. So I'm not long narrative poems like Don Juan, <laughs> <laughs> but, but a few pages. So it'll be, it should, anyway, I mean, that's if someone wants to publish it, which is, remains to be seen. I believe a very difficult thing to get poetry yeah, published yeah, in this I'm country. Sure. Thankfully, not something I will ever have to face. But, you know, I think if we look at your writing, Craig, Poetry, it, it makes sense to me that you're mm. a poet. You write yeah. very poetically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of, to be honest, think of myself not as a poet, but, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose on some level, you know, I, I just write narrative poems. You know, I've written quite a lot of plays as well. So, and plays are difficult because you need the, the you know, the, 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 the skills of a novelist and a poet, you know, because you have to be able to construct a dramatic narrative with characters and relationships dialogue and all those mm. things you do in a novel but you've it's got to have the economy and layeredness of a poem but i i mean particularly my new novel it just feels it, it's it's very the language is very poetic and and so i don't sort of feel like i've ever left poetry really mm. I, so i don't really have much to say in poetry before whereas out of this new novel i i suddenly had a whole lot of stuff to say and poetry was the correct medium for it so i had to kind of wait till the age of 51 before. I thought you were 492. (laughs) (laughs) So it's exciting to hear that you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us as much as you can tell us about that book? Yeah, so, um, you know, usually I write quite fast. So I write a novel, a draft, if I'm writing quite consistently within about four, four to six months, I can write a draft. My novels tend to be quite short, around 61, 63,000 words. This one took a longer time to write. It, it's probably it's just under 120,000 words, sure. so it's much longer wow, yes. than my previous books, almost double. Um, and it took at least a year to write a draft. And it's the book that I wrote during lockdown and this whole period. Um, I had a novel called The, the, the Book of Gifts that came mm-hmm. out. We had a launch at Love Books. The next night we had an event at St. John's. I think that was a Thursday night, the Friday morning, Cyril declared national lockdown and it was illegal to go to a bookshop mm. for three months. And then everyone was too scared to go to a bookshop <laughs> for the next three months. But I absorbed the, the sort of darkness and the fragility of that time and then wrote a novel that's really about 
looking at people, you know, in, in the most extreme dark times and, and how they can kind of find their way towards the light, towards some sort of connection, some sort of sense of, of some higher truth, some redemptive way of being in the world. And so, and so that's what it was. So it's got a, a kind of, it's actually got three narrative threads, but it's got two main narrative threads, which is a historical thread, which is, which is the Anglo-Zulu War. And then it's got a sort of a murder story in Zululand now. So at the beginning of the novel, there's this girl who's, this young girl who's seen on the, Buff- on the Buffalo River that's in flood. And her body's sort of washed up in these rocks and this goat herd sees them and these two policemen wade into the water to try and fetch and then the, the river washes her away again. And they believe it's Sam Webster, this, this 17-year-old girl who's gone missing, who's a, the daughter of of someone who runs one of those tourist lodges, luxury lodges, sort of David Rattray type. Mm. There are quite a few. It's not based on fugitives drift. I mean, there are, there are a few. <laughs> but a very charismatic, famous historian father is his daughter. So the novel, in a way, is a kind of a, a murder mystery. You know, what, what happened to this girl? How did this come to, to happen? And then it's uh, the, the the protagonist is is this novelist who is friendly with the family because he had been down to their lodge before to research a book about his his ancestor, who was famously a coward in the Sandalwana <laughs> War. Um, you know, whenever you read the accounts of the Battle of Sandalwana, it's always these sort of heroic stories. You know, yeah. out of the pages of kind of Wilbur Smith and stuff. You know what I mean? And these. Incredible men. I thought it'd be very interesting to write a story about a coward, about someone who was, you know, mentioned as a bit of a disgrace <laughs> in the, the Anglo Zulu War and, and, and write his story. Very interesting. Um, and there's a guy called Walter Higginson who is famous for three times abandoning his men at the height of battle, and stealing another man's horse, you know, to get away. And any relation. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't actually tried to find out if he's any actual relation, but I think just the name. So it's got this, it's got this war narrative. And, and I mean, it seemed, you know, whenever I try to read about the Battle of San Luan, I'd get as far as Charlie Raw and, and his Basutu soldiers coming onto this crest and, and discovering the Zulu army. They'd been a few kilometers away from the camp in hiding and they were waiting for the day of the dead moon to pass. There's an eclipse. And in Zulu culture, so I've read. During eclipse, it's a time when the division between our world and the spirit world is kind of dissolved, and it's a time when dark spirits can enter, and it's not a good time to go into battle. Okay. So they were waiting for that day to pass, and then they were going to attack the camp. But this little posse of people, the main British army had already left the camp. This little posse of people came across this the Zulu army. It was about 40,000 people, but there were actually women and children there who were helping with the cooking and and looking after the slaughter cattle or whatever. But there were 20,000, 25,000 Zulu soldiers who just stood up and attacked. Um, and Walter Higginson was amongst them. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so, so, so it's got that sort of the, and, and I mean, whenever I sort of read about it, I just couldn't get further than that moment because it just, it was just the slaughter. I mean, just this terrible, dark slaughter, just the worst of humanity, you know, just, I think in these extreme war situations, it mm-hmm. sort of brings out some other thing. Um, and then there's this disappearance of this girl, and we're living in a mm-hmm. country where children are disappearing all the time, and, mm-hmm. 
you know so um, so it's 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 and how does one live in a world where your child disappears so you know it's, it sort of starts off in quite a hectic place but then goes to surprising areas after that I've got some questions on that, but I want to just take a step back to your process. Um, and t- I want you to tell us about when you are in the heat of writing, when you're writing a novel. How does it work? When, when do you write? How much do you write? Um, what does your writing process look like? So at the moment I'm teaching, I'm teaching English and drama at St. John's. I've been doing that. I'm in my fourth year of doing that. I teach AP English, now called FS English at Kingsmead, grade 10, 11, 12. And I've got postgraduate writing students at AFTA and MA students. I used to have honours and MA, now I've just got MA students. So I'm quite busy. Mm. Um, plus I'm a dad and, and all of that stuff. So um, I don't have, you know, the luxury of time to write. Um, as I say, I have these these holidays, but then I, yeah, I, I mean, I've used some of those holidays for writing well, but not not necessarily. So I don't really have any time at all in the day to write. So... The way I've written this novel is 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 basically in my car, in the car park of St John's. So I would I would arrive forty five minutes earlier than I was supposed to, with a flask of coffee, and I'd put some earphones in and sit in the back of my car. And what do you write on to do that? Just in, back, direct into my little computer. My okay. So you're laptop. typing into a laptop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, and I think because I started off writing poetry, for me writing. I, I, I'm sort of in a quite a heightened state, and it's not something that one can sustain for very long, actually. Mm. So I think even if I had all day, I probably wouldn't write for more than an hour, maybe two. Mm. But for me, it's it's about being in a slightly epiphanic state, almost like a heightened state, and writing in a zone. And 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 I have to do it at the beginning of the day before I'm sort of coloured by the the normality of, of of everything around me. I mean, I've said before, you know, I think you're born with a little pocket of gold dust and you, and you can use it up every day. But by sort of, if you wait too long, it sort of evaporates and you've got to use that. It's your essential energy, your, mm. your most sort of potent aliveness. If you put that into your writing, um, at the beginning of the day, just, just a little bit. So I just, I'd just write a paragraph or two, sometimes a couple of pages. Sometimes I'll just rework something. Um, the English poet Philip Larkin said that after he'd written a poem, he felt like he had laid an egg. Um, you know, and he had a very mundane job at working in a, as a librarian at Hull University. And my kind of thing is, I I, I put out a lot of energy in the day. I'm, I'm teaching, mm. you know, and so I'm I'm giving my energy out all the time. And I, I, if I've done a little bit of writing in the morning, then I kind of feel that that I can give the rest of my energy over to to what my job is. Um, obviously, many mornings you don't do that. You've got to take your kid to school or your kid's sick or you're sick or you have to go in for an early meeting or whatever, but that's what I try and do. And I think it's very important with books. It's not about, you know, for a novel, it's, it's such a constellation of interconnected images and echoes and relationships that you have to have it alive inside you. I mean, the, the analogy I've come up with before is sort of a Christmas tree with all the lights on. And when you're writing a book, that book is the Christmas tree and all those, that constellation, all the little lights. And if you don't write for a day or two, it's okay. They, they, they might start, fl- one or two mm-hmm. might start flickering. But if it, 
if a few days go by, a couple of lights die out, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, there's like a few lights here and there. And you can't write forward on a novel if you don't know what you've written. If you can't remember what you've written, if it's not alive inside you, it's the dead spaces, the connections aren't going to happen. So you have to keep it alive inside you. So you have to live with it. You have to, you know, you have to, um, yeah, you have to carry it with you all the time. So I'm, I am kind of thinking about it all the time. And often at school, I'll, if the kids are writing a, an essay or a test, instead of marking, I'll just work out with my novel a bit. Or if I got a gap between a couple of lessons, especially, especially if it's sort of early in the day, if I've got a sort of half past seven to eight, fifteen thing, I'll go to the coffee shop at St. John's and put the earphones on and, and just tap away for another half hour or something. I just, I, it's like water, you know, it, it, it finds, it, finds its way and you just seep into the, wherever there's a gap you you seep into it and I, you become quite cunning at, at sort of finding ways to do it um, and I've always had a day job I've always be, written like that um, if I have a if I was to just only be a writer and I had the whole day to do it I, I'm, I'm, I mean I'm sure I'd manage it but I think even if I was being translated into 40 languages and making a fortune I would still teach or work you know, I think it's yeah. important to be in the world and be part of the world. I, I think that, I mean, I'm naturally quite a solitary person anyway, so I don't sort of need people all the time. You know, I'm, I'm quite happy in my own company. And I think if I was just to write, I would become quite <laughs> insular. And I think it's very important, you know, and teaching's fantastic because younger people are irreverent, they don't care, they're honest. And, um, and I'd love teaching. I mean, I, I think it's a thing that's a valuable thing to do. It feels, you know, hopefully on a good day that you, you're helping to make the world a little bit better, hopefully, you know. Um, so, so that's, that's how I wrote this novel, but I've only been teaching at a school for just over four years. So before that, I was writing television and I did that for about four and a half years. And people said, there's no way you're going to be able to write for TV and carry on writing your novels. Um, because the TV writing is it's a very different thing. But it sucks from that creative energy. It, it uses up, yeah, it uses up your energy. I'm not sure how creative it often is. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was doing a lot of script editing. So I was just, you know, that was kind of continuity stuff. But even the scripts, you know, it's all mapped out and it's, you're writing, you know, you've got to fit in with a, with a broader current. Um, but I think because I was a writer, I think a lot of people who go from sort of journalism or something into writing, or from TV writing into writing struggle, because I don't know, it, it's sort of, there's a kind of a crossover or a spillage or something that happens. But I think because I've always written and, and I've got, I'm quite fit with it. You know what I mean? Mm. I've got a kind of, I can go to that place quite quickly. I don't have to wait for inspiration. I just, you know, I think writer's blocks are luxury I've never been able to afford. You know what I mean? There's got far too little time for writer's block. You know what I mean? I have a moment that is precious to me and I'll use it. Um, actively. And so, yeah. Um, so, so even then I would, I would, then I had a bit more time because I was working from home and it was a bit more flexible. So I could, I could work for an hour and a half in the morning. Um, lockdown also, we were all at home. So that also gave me a bit of time to write. But I'm very stubborn. So I just get it done somehow. Let's talk about that spillage. Um, you are a playwright and a novelist. When an idea comes to you, how do you decide whether it's going to be a play or a novel? 
Um, so, I mean, I think I'm more of a novelist than a playwright because I sort of think in novels. I don't really think in plays. It was only really when I was working at the Market Theatre, I was there for eight years, that I was thinking in plays because I was surrounded by plays and I was reading plays, I was watching plays, I was engaged with plays. I was in a theatre that had an audience and I was thinking about that audience and what play that audience might want to, you know, watch. Um, and I kind of knew that as soon as I left the Market Theatre, it would it would diminish slightly. Um, also, when you're working in a building, in a theatre building, you're part of that conversation. So international people come and they come to the market theatre and you're the literary manager of the market theatre and you're a playwright. And these collaborations, these partnerships, these tours, they sort of happen quite organically. Whereas as soon as you leave the building, you're not part of that conversation anymore. So it's much harder as a playwright. If you look at the plays that tour around the world, they're generally made by the people who are artistic directors in the key theatres all kind of close associates of theirs who are very connected with the theatre. And it's quite hard for people outside of a building to to be part of that. So, um, I mean, I, th- I think I've, I mean, I've, I've started, I wrote a, a little play for for St. John's this year for the Vida Festival. Did very well. And no, no, it wasn't the one that won. That was another oh, play. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, and, and, and I, there's a play that I've started tinkering with. But... Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, I think I have patches as well, but at the, yeah. Um, but I mean, I, th- I think that, I mean, they're very different forms, plays and novels. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you're watching a play, you only have access to what people are saying and doing. Whereas a novel is all about the interior world of the character, predominantly the protagonist, the, the consciousness, the journey of the consciousness of the protagonist in a way is kind of what a novel is involved with. So it's much more internal and much more about language in a way. Um, so they're very different, but, I mean, I think that what, what I did with, um, um, the, the three novels before this new one is that they had been plays. So, okay. so, um, the dream house had been a play mm-hmm. called the dream of the dog. The white room had been a play called the girl in the other dress. And for different reasons, I turned them into novels. And then even the book of gifts had actually been a play. Okay. And, but I'd left the market theater. It sat with the Baxter theater for, I think, four years and, kept saying to Laura, can we do it? And she kept saying, I don't have the money. I like it. But, and then I thought, you know what, to be honest, it's just going to be quicker to write this as a novel. <laughs> just quickly, I'll just quickly write a novel. So, yeah. so, so I did that. Um, so, so those three novels are, are quite minimalistic. They're quite layered. They're quite pared down. There's a lot of whiteness of the page. I mean, the white mm. room, one of the white rooms in the white room is the white page. Again, that idea of poetry and the placement of the page and the whiteness of the page sort of speaking and the, and all of that, you know, so they were, they were very particular novels. And this new one, I've gone back to the, the sort of thing I was doing in The Landscape Painter, which is a much more big boned story that can only really be a novel. Um, it could be a very expensive film or miniseries. But, you know, the wonderful thing about writing is you just, you know, you write, the helicopter landed in Venice. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it, and it, it takes a moment whereas to actually f- film that. You know what I mean? Your budget's already gone with one sentence. So, you know, fiction's lovely because it gives you that kind of freedom. You can do so much with a novel. Um, so I think some ideas can, but, but then they change and they have to be different. I mean, turning the dream, the dream of the dog into the dream house. You're moving a dream from a dog to a house, sort of interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly I had to worry about what was going on inside the heads of these characters. And when I came upon the title, The Dream House, I thought, ah, oh, yes, that's what it's about. They're all looking, f- they're dreaming of a home, a homeland. 
place to settle. They're, they're all adrift. And I think that's one thing we all have in common as, as South Africans. We don't have much in common <laughs> other than things like crime. But, but one of the things that I think all South Africans share is this feeling that we haven't yet arrived at the country we could and should be living in. We're all looking for a homeland, a place to settle. We don't feel we've arrived yet at the, at the country that we could be living in. And so, so finding the title of the novel then helped me to find the interior life of the characters. And then it became something very different from the play. Um, and characters that had barely been mentioned or weren't even in the play found mm. their way into the novel and mm. it becomes much more populated. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I like novels because, you know, plays, it's just damn hard. It was a novel, you know, you're the actors, you're the designer, you're the weather person, you're everything. And, and I'm not a writer who has to deliver a manuscript every year or every two years. I can just deliver when I want to. So it's, it's a much less stressful. I want to activity. take a step back, Craig, to talk about, you've had this very varied yet very creative career to talk about what you did to qualify to do that. What is your real backstory? What did you study when you, you, at 19, you decided to be a poet? How does one qualify oneself to be a poet? You just call yourself a poet. You might be a very bad <laughs> poet. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to Wits. I actually had a shared a German class with Fiona, but she can't, who, who no, prides no, herself do, on I her do, memory. I do she can't actually this. remember. But we, so I did, I started off doing fine art for two years. Um, and then at age of 19, I started writing poems and I suddenly realized I was much more articulate with language than I ever would be with visual images. And I kind of felt I could express much more with language than I ever could visually. Um, so I, I switched. So, you know, my BA was history of art, English, did a couple of years of philosophy, I did a year of linguistics, year of German. Then I did an honors in English and European literature. Okay. And I was actually, um, believe it or not, quite clever at university. I'd been quite I thick. I can at, believe it very I'd easily. been quite thick at school. I mean, I was, I never thought of myself as someone who could be clever or go as clever. I just, I get sort of seventies for things and, bumble along and I thought that was fine and then I decided at school at university that I was going to do well and and that I wanted to do an MA overseas and all that so then I started doing very well at university and I could have got a you know a scholarship to to do my MA but um I bumped into Barney Simon um, the theatre director who started the market theatre and and co-wrote the play Wars of Albert um, so I'm not talking about the radio DJ Barney Simon because people get confused. Um, and he, uh, I, uh, he said, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm going to be a poet. You know, as one does at the age of 19. <laughs> I think I was about 21 at that point, actually. And, um, he said, oh, why don't you send me some of your poems? So I, I dropped off some poems at the market theater and I didn't hear from him for six, six months. And then he phoned me. I was still living with my mom. He phoned me at 11 o'clock at night saying, are you free at the moment? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, do you want to talk about your poem? So I said, yeah. So I, dro- I drove across to South Kensington to his house. At 11 o'clock at night? Yeah. Um, my no, mother, was, my mother was a little bit, yeah, yeah, my mother was a bit concerned. Yeah. Actually, it was probably, actually, it was probably about nine o'clock at night, but still. Um, so I went there and I think we talked for seven hours. Um, and I'd never really been listened to by an adult like, like he listened to me at that, in that conversation. Um, and the next evening I went there and chatted and we talked for another seven hours and he said, oh, this job is coming up as my assistant. Do you want to apply for it? So I applied for that and I thought I'll just take a year out and 
do a bit of writing, hang out at the market theatre, and then I can apply for scholarships and go overseas and do all of that. Um, and I hadn't studied theatre, I hadn't done drama and film at university. You had that drama class like with Fiona. No, 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 no that German, was German. German. Oh, that was German. Oh, I had drama. <laughs> no, German. I was. Um, and yeah, I suppose, I mean, I didn't realise that Barney Simon is Barney Simon, really. Do you know what I mean? I, I thought that there were lots of Barney Simons in the world and that I would spend my life meeting more and more Barney Simons, you know. Mm. Um, it was only actually after he died, while I was still working for him, I had to clear out his house and give away his pets and all of that and try and get his manuscripts together for the, you know, the the archive in Grahamstown. Um, it was only really when I, when I went to England after that that um, I realised that he was, you know, he, he was so loved and esteemed mm. in the theatre world or around the world. Mm. Um, but uh, but I, I think that that sort of changed me completely. He was very anti-academic. I think he had a couple of weeks at Wits, like Nadine Gordon and Athel Fugard. They didn't last at university. They, they didn't, they couldn't stomach it. Um, and he was quite anti. And he said, you know, you've got to roll around in the mud more. You know, I was always sort of, re- I was, my head was full of Keats and all those <laughs> sorts of, of things. You know what I mean? I, I was a very strange kid. Um, and you know, he, he, he was very South African. He would take me to Hillbrow and we'd get these blintzes from this little shop that he'd been buying stuff from since he was a kid. And, you know, he would make me look at people, you know, and how this person was you know, getting the mud out of the cliff and, you know, eating it. And I don't know, just, he, just the, the world of the city, you know, he, mm. and, and just hanging out with him and listening to him talk and interact with people was, was kind of, and I mean, we used to argue quite a lot. He was quite stubborn and he would sort of, he would be very interested in you and then he would sort of put you in a box and then, then that'd be your box. And you had to sort of fight your way out that box. And, um, and I started my novel, um, Embodied Laughter while I was working with him. I was 20, 22. Um, and he kept saying, please send it, give it to me, show it to me. Mm-hmm. But every time I'd shown him a poem or a play that I'd started, he, he always made me start again. I said, no, I'm going to get to the end of the first draft. I'm not letting you come near it. Even when he was in hospital, he was saying, when are you going to show me your book? I said, I'm, I've got to get to the end. And then he died. And then I, and then I, I, I finished the novel. Um, and then a couple of years later got it published. But so, and then I sort of went to England on holiday and John Carney said, Craig, go as long as you like. It'll be a job for you when you come back. Um, little did he or I know that it would take me 10 years to come back. Oh, but weirdly, yeah, when I, I did. I wanted to ask why you came back, because I it came. must have crossed your mind not to. Yeah, I, got, I stayed on because I decided I wanted to get a British passport for some reason. And then as soon as I got a British passport, and I went and lived in Paris to teach English as a foreign language. Because I actually didn't like living in England, if I'm honest. I never quite settled there. I mean, okay. I, I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company for a couple of years, and I loved that, for example. So at the Young Vic Theatre in London for a couple of years, and I loved that as well. But I basically I should just never go on holiday because I came back to South African holiday, and <laughs> just that you know I, I remember I'd given up smoking, and then I stole one of my mother's cigarettes and went into the garden, and stood under the Southern Cross, and then I had to go and fetch her from Vitz in a little Toyota Corolla, and standing at the traffic light and watching the people queued up waiting to get on the bus and the taxis, and this realization that that I that these people mattered to me that this is where I cared, that this is where there was meaning for me. And whether the people at the bus stop or not, 
wanted me there. <laughs> you know, I'm sure they, I'm they really, sure didn't, they you know, didn't care I'm about sure they really you. didn't care about me. But I, there was something about, we had a sort of a history and a thing that, I, that in England, I didn't have anything to say. You know, I was surrounded by much clearer people who'd grown up there, who had lots to say, who were so furious about the, you know, the conservatives or whatever. And I'd look at them and I couldn't really see the difference in the policies between the conservatives and labor. There was Tony Blair's time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought they would argue about shades of gray and whereas South Africa, it was clear and things mm. mattered. And so I met up with Regina Seabright, who was the producer there at the market theater. And she said, I'd come read scripts. We need a literary manager. And then, it, then it, I made a job. Then I had to apply for the job because it became an actual job. And then I sat on there for, for about eight years with Malcolm Perky. Um, so I had 10 years in England, which I kind of think that in a way I was kind of adrift and a bit lost, actually, to be honest. And I do, I mean, my new novel is quite autobiographical on one level, okay. even though it's not me. A lot of the backstory of, of the protagonist is, is a lot of my story. And um, I think I was, yeah, I, I, I think I needed that time in exile. It was a sort of an exile. Mm. I was sort of adrift. And I remember living, living in Paris thinking, you know, I could be living anywhere. You know, I mean, because I'm either asleep or I'm working or I'm reading or I'm cooking or I'm taking out the rubbish or whatever. And occasionally you look around and you think, gosh, I'm in Paris. And the, there's a bit more selection of cheese and the pastries taste better. But it, you're in your own head. You're in your own consciousness. And I think that was the problem. I didn't really actually inhabit Paris. You know, I didn't really mm-hmm. inhabit England. I never really, I mean, I had a relationship that lasted for a while. We, we could have maybe got married and stuff, but I just was never ready to settle. I just, mm-hmm. um, and my writing only really took off when I came back here. And it was interesting because all those theaters that were sort of all snooty with me, you know, when mm-hmm. I was there, I was like, what's this white South African doing living in England, trying to be a writer? You know, they mm-hmm. were, they were quite judgy of me being there. And, you know, he's just, now that apartheid's ended, he's trying to get the hell out of there kind of thing. Um, and, and they were quite hostile. But then when I was, as soon as I was back in Johannesburg writing plays about stuff they didn't know about, then suddenly all those theaters and things wanted to put on my plays. So, um, so then, yeah, and I was at the market theater and my plays, you know, did really well, you know, for, for while I was at the market and traveled and, and were produced all over the place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what I've written came out of that 10 years of drifting around. But, um, I, I, I kind of regret it in a way. I, I kind of, I, I could have got a scholarship. I wonder why now, why I, you know, I just didn't do more. I mean, I've, I've since got an MA and a PhD in creative writing at WIT since I came back. But, you know, England was there. I could have done all sorts of things and I, I, I was strangely passive and, and sort of dislocated. I read a great deal and worked in a bookshop where I met all the, all the writers, you know, from around the, you know, all the famous writers. It was an incredible independent bookshop. Everyone used to walk in through the door. Um, but I think I wasted years of my life. I think this is where I'm most alive. I think that that's quite a common feeling. I think a lot of us look back and go, what the hell? Mm. What the hell? What did I do with those years? Mm. Maybe it's part of being 492 yeah. that you, you suddenly realize those were wasted years and now I've only got a finite amount yeah. left and what am I going to do with them? Yeah. I'm very yeah. much at that point because I'm 490. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of what Johnny Steinberg was saying about how he has never, he's, he's lived 
in England for a long time and he has never felt at all inspired to write about it mm. because he feels as though he doesn't know it. It's, he's not mm. familiar enough with the, the idiom yeah. or the politics and South Africa is home and that's where he draws his inspiration from. Yeah. So it sounds like similar. I mean, people always say, you know, write about what you know. And I always say, no. Mm. Writing is about something else. Writing is about what you care, writing about what you care deeply about. And, but don't necessarily know or understand, you know. I mean, when I run writing workshops, I'm always trying to get people to tap into what makes them angry or what makes them frightened or what, you know, to, to, to tap into a deep unconscious or semi-conscious root, you know, so that the writing can be about trying to work out, give shape to this unprocessed feeling that's a very, comes out of a deep necessity, but isn't really perceived or shaped or anything like that. I think if you were to only write what you knew, you just write the already known, which is that luckily we live in a country that is so unfathomable and complex <laughs> that, that it's certainly, I think no one can say with any confidence that they know where we live. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's a minefield, but it's also urgent. And, and sometimes you, as my wife, Leela, who works in the theater says, you've got to sit in a space and, and wait for the question to emerge. You know, you've, you've got to let the space talk back at you. People talk back at you sometimes as well, rather than sort of imposing your own need over it. Mm. Yeah. Now, you have done higher degrees in creative writing, and you've also taught creative writing. To what extent is it a teachable skill, and what aspects of it can be taught? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are very contentious about creative writing courses. And, you know, obviously you can't teach someone how to be a writer, for someone to be a writer, they've got to have something to say. They've got to, they've got to have a proposal to make. You've got to have a provocation to, to, to bring into the world. Um, I think if you're not going to, if you don't have something to provoke or something to you that you want to shift or, you know, come in with some sort of angle on, 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 on the everyday. I think what's useful about a creative writing course is that you take into a process. And I remember, you know, it was very useful for me because, you know, we, I, we, we had a little baby at the time and I said, my, my PhD, you know, and I could say to my, I'm sorry, I've got to do my PhD rather than <laughs> I'm going to write my novel. You know what I mean? <laughs> PhD sounds much more official and, you know, there's a deadline and there's a room full of people who all take themselves very seriously who you've got to be accountable towards. You know what I mean? So. I suddenly understand why so many men study further in those early years of <laughs> yeah, fatherhood. Exactly. They're terrified of it. No, I'm not terrified of my wife at all, but yeah. So, I mean, I think it gives you a process. It gives you deadlines. It gives you a structure. It gives you a whole editorial team. Um, you know, I kind of feel that, I mean, what I like about after is that it's very pragmatic. My students are making a film or writing a film, writing a film and making a film often. And they're, so it's it's very, you know, let's look at the story, the character, you know, something happens in Act 4 that we need to, you know what I mean? I, I like the pragmatism of that. I, I do find the academic thing sometimes quite dislocated from reality. It annoyed me when someone was writing a play with 15 characters and I would say, it's going to be very hard to produce this play. Mm. And I'd know that the writer wanted the, her play to be put on, mm. but everyone in the room was saying, no, this is an academic space, you know, you must just explore what you want to explore and it's not for us to, and I was like, no, part of being a writer is being practical and working in the world and getting mm. yourself published or produced or whatever. And, and that's part of the craft and the skill. And that's all part of it. You should be teaching that. Mm. So I, I kind of find with the academic thing, it's sometimes, you know, academics are odd. I mean, some of my 
them are my dearest friends, but you know, put them in a room together, they get quite sort of competitive, and you know, <laughs> it gets quite charged, and and it can be very destructive for some writers. I've, mm. I've seen some people, some quite um, um, experienced writers, not being able to sustain that space. Um, I, I protected myself by always being a few, a sort of 20,000 words ahead of what I was submitting to the group. So that I would kind of, I would have already moved past what I, what I was giving them. You weren't emotionally so it invested would, it in wouldn't those, disrupt me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I could take on the notes. And then when I did the next draft, I obviously took into account everything that they mm. said. It was very helpful. But, um, you've got to be, yeah, you've got to be quite careful. But I, I mean, I think, I think that, um, writers are people who write. You know, I don't think they're this special breed of human being that exists separate from mm. the rest of humanity. I think we're just normal people, often, as Freud would say, rather damaged and, and processed and neurotic. And we, we, we have this strange compulsion to create alternative realities. Um, I mean, there's other two sort of models of writers, sort of the Jungian, that they can tap into some sort of archetype and they sort of got access to some sort of higher truth. And there's the Freudian thing is that it's just an illness. I, I think there's a bit of... I had no idea writers could be divided on Freudian and Jungian. Well, um, I, I mean, I don't think they can, because I think there's a bit of both, you know. But, um, yeah, so, yeah. So the book that came out of your PhD was The Dream House. Is that correct? No, yes. My MA was The Landscape Painter, and, mm-hmm. and The Dream House was my PhD. Okay, so let's talk about the dream house um, and face up to the fact that it takes the reader into some very uncomfortable places. Uh, you have to inhabit something that is very, very difficult to look at, difficult to think about, and difficult just to be in that space. And I've noticed that one or two of the reviews that greeted that book mm you could clearly see that the reviewer was made so uncomfortable by the material that they hated feeling uncomfortable like that and then projected that hatred onto the book Mm. and started looking for excuses to say, this book is making me feel very bad, therefore it's a bad book. Mm. And that is a thing that has happened to me. Mm. Reviewers have done that to me. And I want to know... Does it infuriate you? Mm. It's interesting because, it, you know, she was saying, you know, the sort of the Zuma years and, you know, forget white guilt. We should be talking about the corrupt government and, you know, the white guilt is sort of an old thing or whatever. And what was so interesting about the novel, The Dream House, is it's become much more contemporary since because now we're much more aware of privilege and, you know, and, and unconscious racism and all mm. these things that the, mm. that the novel is completely about. Mm. And... um and yeah, I mean, I, I did write the dream house. You know, I talked earlier about provocation, feeling that, that in the white community in South Africa at that particular time, remember it was a play in 2006, it was a radio play, 2007, it was a play, 2010, it was then a play in England. So it had lots of lives before mm. it became a novel. It only came out in, as a novel in 2015. And I had to change it as the climate changes, mm. you know, as the Zuma years got kind of darker, the story got kind of darker. But I did feel that there was this kind of denialism that, you know, that, that we, this will to forget and not just from white South Africans. I mean, I remember I had a drama student in fourth year. She was very political, um, sort of feminist, very, very political, quite pan-Africanist. And she'd never heard of necklacing. What? She didn't, she'd never heard of necklacing. It never been taught. Was to she her very school. young? She was 
2021 because it isn't taught because mm. it's it's just too uncomfortable. Yes. You know, pe- people want to talk about the atrocities of apartheid, but they don't want to talk about the complexity of necklacing and impimpies and police informers and all that world of turning inward mm. and, you know, the, and, and kangaroo courts and all that mm. stuff, the messiness of that time. People don't want to talk about that and they want to teach it in schools. It's not part of the curriculum. Um, so I kind of felt we actually need to, if we're going to heal, we've had this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but there was very little truth in TRC that only scratched the surface. And if, and what is the truth anyway? To try and investigate the complexity mm. of what the truth is, particularly if it's if it's represented through memory. I mean, as we all know, our memories are shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we, you know, and and memory becomes, you know, you remember what you remember out of your needs in the present. You reinvent the past according to your needs in the present. Um, and and so I wanted to kind of write about all that all that stuff to to just I, I suppose to get us to kind of relook at ourselves and each other with a little bit more care, a little bit more patience, and a little bit less. I sort of felt like Favut was triumphing because we were just all those categories, those myths of fundamental essentialist difference that he had kind of invented, helped to invent. We were living with and mm. and and continuing in deep into our so-called democracy, and so I was. I was really trying to provoke that and disrupt that. Um, and then, of course, it was a matrix set work, mm-hmm. as I think you know, for three years. And it was interesting because it had such a range of responses. Um, teachers who loved it, their classes tended to love it. But teachers who – and it also was being taught – the first year was before COVID and then the next two years were during the height of COVID – so it was taught online. Mm. It wasn't in the classroom. Mm. And it was different. It's a, the kind of book that you've got to sit in a room and debate and talk and discuss. And if you, you're just presenting PowerPoints, or, you know, mm. on a, on a screen and everyone's at home in their tracksuits, you know, playing a video game on the side, mm. pretending to listen, it's, they're not going to engage. Um, but yeah, and some of the kids also kind of resented it. And, but I mean, I had incredible and it's still being taught a lot in grade 11 classes, mm. in a lot of schools. Um, and I mean, I even went in this year to talk to Crawford, Santon, those, those students, and they were deeply engaged, and particularly the black students. I mean, the, 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 the novel, a lot of them have said that it talks about stuff that they've often felt and, and thought, but have, they've never seen in a book. Um, a lot of them have said, you know, this was written by a white man, like, what mm. the hell is he gonna have to say to me? But I mean, I think it wasn't just written by me. It was, it was a play. It, I'd had readings, you know, people like Ndisi Shabangu, Selamake Kantube, mm. who in London we had a reading. Ndisi Shabangu is a dear friend who passed in his late 40s not long ago, very tragically. He was one of our best actors. You know, he, his politics and, 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 and some of the way, when he, the way he performed Look Smart in the play, the way he got the dust off the mantelpiece, the way he peeled the apple, all that found its way back into the book. So, you know, I think I think one of the reasons the Dream House connects with a much bigger audience and, and has a deeper resonance is because I was writing about something bigger than myself and my own needs and my own mm. experience. I was trying to write a State of the Nation play initially, which then became a kind of a novel. And I remember after The Landscape Painter, which did well, um, but it was set in the past, and I thought... If I'm going to call myself a South African novice, I think a little bit like you did with Lacuna, you know, the sort of I want to try and write about the present, what is, because because that's my job. That's, I have a duty to try and engage with this weirdness, this complexity, um, and and so that's what I was kind of trying to do.
and then the white room was 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 lifting that into more international uh, space. And interesting, you know, the girl in the yellow dress, which was an incredibly successful play, uh, both here and and internationally, um, wasn't South African at all. It was a it was a it was a girl from England and a Congolese kid, and it was a two hander. But when I tried to write it as a novel, I re- immediately realised I couldn't write the protagonist who was the woman as an English person, because I didn't grow up in England, I just couldn't begin to. So I made her South African, which completely changed the meaning of the whole thing as well. Because um, she's sort of going as English and is actually African, and he's going as African, and actually you find he's French, he's never been to the Congo, he's not a refugee, he's just a liar. And, um, yeah, that sort of thing of, of a novel, you you do, you have to know much more to, to write a convincing character in a novel than I think with a play because a play can, the actor can bring so much as well. They come with a whole world, a whole interior life that enriches that part. But you, to do that in a novel, you have to write that in. And, and so you have to have some of that content. And I, I just couldn't fake it with a, an English mm. middle class girl. Craig, you mentioned that your latest manuscript has autobiographical elements in it, but I was wondering uh, that about the white room. Um, I thought that Hannah was possibly based quite closely on elements of your own life. Yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, interestingly, with the, the dream house, you know, people often thought that, particularly school kids, that, you know, looking at Richard, who's a sort of white male, that I'd be closest to that character. He's a horrifying character. Yeah. Um, but actually, in a way, the character that I relate most to is, is Luxmar, who's the sort of middle character, sort of, this guy who's between different spaces and doesn't ever quite sort of fit anywhere. Um, Hannah is definitely not me, although I gave her my plays. So her sort of playwright trajectory mm-hmm. I'd given her. But Pia, the character that she has a relationship with, who's, again, the kind of fake Congolese refugee, um, is is probably the character that I relate most to. I mean, I, the, 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 I mean if I'm completely honest, the, the girl in the yellow dress came out of a relationship that I had in England with this girl and I kind of distilled it down to the sort of echo on a narcissist myth. Needless to say, I was echo and she was narcissist. <laughs> and so Hannah's the sort of the girl in the yellow dress, the narcissist flower, the narcissist. And he's echo who's in the play, her student who's learning to speak her language. And as with a lot of teacher students, narratives, the power balance reverts, you know, shifts, reverses and, he ends up and becomes sort of allegory for apartheid, post-apartheid, South African colonialism and post-colonialism. Yeah, I mean, I, I give characters all sorts of qualities and I draw from things that happen in people. But the, the, because of the internal necessities of the piece, that the meaning changes almost immediately and they become something completely else. This new novel, yeah, I mean, the new novel, in a way, the sort of model, and it sounds very pompous, but... One of the things I listened to during COVID was Anna Karenina, which I'd read, I think, about four or five times when I was young. And I hadn't returned to it for many years. And I listened to it with um, Maggie Gyllenhaal narrating. She's brilliant. And what's lovely about that is you can sense that there's, it's got the sort of soap opera narrative of this woman having an affair. Mm-hmm. But actually Tolstoy's real interest in writing the book is about Levin, who's a sort of a character that carries Tolstoy's philosophy and his, a lot of his dilemmas and his character. And that's kind of why he wrote the book. And I was doing a, a similar thing in, in the, the, the Ghost of Sam Webster where where I'm sort of writing about my own philosophical journey through the world. 
and journey as a writer, but it's sort of the, the pages are being turned by this murder mystery and this war story. Craig, that leads me to something I'm very curious about. You, you are a very intellectual writer. You, you come to the page with poetry on your mind. I think you are one of the South African writers. We've talked, I think, in the podcast about storytellers versus people who write beautiful sentences, and the two don't often overlap, but you do overlap. You come to writing with quite, it feels to me, like quite a, a lot you are trying to achieve in your writing. Does it feel like that as you sit down to write, or do you think you feel the same as I feel when I sit down to write a story, because I'm a storyteller? I mean, I, th- I think you have to have a story to tell. I think the, the reader needs to have a reason to turn the next page. I don't understand people who say they don't write narrative, because everything's narrative. If there are a series of images or events that are experienced chronologically through time, that's narrative. So you've got to take responsibility for that. And one of the exciting, lovely, pleasurable things about reading a book is like, what's going to happen next? I can't wait to get back to my book. So there always have to be those those kind of carrots dangling. And, you know, I think working in TV helped as well because mm. it's very much about story structure. And, you know, you go deep into Robert McGee and all that stuff, which we a lot of us know anyway mm. just from experience and absorbing story our whole lives. I mean, Hollywood, you know, all that stuff. And away from the Greeks, not much has actually changed. Um, over two and a half thousand years of storytelling in the West. Um, but yeah, those people say, you know, that narrative, some sort of, you know, dirty word or something, you know, the narrative is there. It's part of, of reading a book. Um, so, so I, you know, I think that you've got to, you've, you've got to enjoy it and it's got to take you elsewhere. You know, I mean, I, I like that, that Iris Murdoch thing where, where she said, you know, I try to write something for everyone. Obviously, you're not going to write something for everyone. Are you not literally true? But Iris Murdoch wrote these wonderful multi-layered sort of love stories. And there was a whole philosophical thing going on underneath them that you could kind of access if you wanted to. But you can also just read Iris Murdoch for the, mm. for the gossip, for the story, for the, you know, she's great like that. And so I try and do that. That, and I think it's, it's also coming as a playwright, you know, that, that sort of a level of social engagement, you know, watching plays when I was a kid really worked me up to the country and the, that I was living in the realities of people who, you know, who I'd never had the opportunity to meet because of, you know, the time that we were living in and, and my circumstances and their circumstances. You know, literature can, can cross those things. And I've experienced the power of, you know, that. And so for me, theatre has to be politically engaged in this country. We've got a job almost to try and make sense of the presence, you know, in a way the writers traditionally be the conscience of and, and, and provided a model of how we could and should be, certainly in the theatre where it was, you know, multiracial workshop theatre, deeply collaborative during apartheid when, when, when the government and a lot of people were doing everything they could to, to divide us. Theatre was a, a model of, of, of this is actually, this is where our humanity lies. And that's why when Nadine Gordon watched Wars Albert, she came out feeling, even though it, lent, it listed this, you know, and they added the name of Ruth first, who'd just been blown up in a letter bomb. Mm. Quite why Craig Williams is wandering around to this day, I don't really understand. But anyway, blown up by a letter bomb, you know, adding these things, you know, Ruth was a very close friend of Barney's. But yet Nadine Gordon came out of there feeling euphoric and defiant and empowered. Mm. And, and, and more and more with, with fiction, you know, the, the dream house ends in the sort of middle space because I felt it wasn't for me to write the history, the, the future of the country. That's for the next generation. Trisha hands the keys over to look smart and it's for him to have the agency in the future. 
But I, I kind of more and more feel that literature also can heal, it can be food, it can be nutrients for living. And and that if you can come away with a book with something that you can live with, live from, and if it can help you to live better, live deeper, live truer, be more open to those around you, then then that, then literature has a, a bigger function. And I, and I do kind of feel, for me, that that's an important thing that literature can do. So a bit in the Book of Gifts, but definitely in this new one, it's it's got a much... Um, it's got a different energy coming out by the end. And speaking of literature as nutrients for life, what have you been reading or listening to or watching lately that's had an impact? So, I mean, I've, I've started thinking about a new novel, and so I've been reading around that. It's a bit too early for me to talk about that. You know, I mean, I listen to, I, I read, I, I generally read, a lot of what I read is, is research and stuff, particularly because I'm working, working these sort of historical things. It's sort of around what I'm I'm writing. For The Ghost of Sam Webster, I went back to Cormac McCarthy, even reread, you know, Hemingway to see, you know, the uh, for whom the bell tolls, you know, the Spanish Civil War, writing about war um, and, and how they kind of did it. Um, I was always quite contentious of Hemingway, but actually he's, at his best, he's brilliant because it's actually not about butch men, it's about the fragility of, of, of the male. And, and he writes with, great honesty actually and detail um so with each novel there's a kind of a constellation of different kinds of writers that i that i'm influenced by or read or and and when i wrote the book of gifts for example i listened to philip glass just in my car wherever i was sitting in a cafe um with the ghost of samuels i listened to a lot of max richter um i don't know if you know his music but incredibly brilliant he's yeah he's sort of maybe 50 or something he's german I think he's German, maybe he's Austrian or something. But um, he does a lot of film writing, but he's incredible, evocative. Stuff that doesn't have a melody, so it's it's kind of got a kind of minimalist influence. So you've got a kind of rhythm and a mood, but there's no melody that's kind of distracting you. So, I mean, the last thing I watched literally was the Lewis Capaldi documentary on Netflix. I didn't actually know his name, but I'd heard his songs. I don't know if you know Lewis Capaldi, but all the young people do. And he's this He's singer. very active on social media. Yeah, and he's just this kid who's, who's been living with his parents, who is just very talented, made these songs that just went viral around the world. But he's so very vulnerable and very innocent mm-hmm. and very sweet. And, um, and, and he got this huge success. And then his mental health became an issue. And he actually had Tourette's, but undiagnosed. And, um, I've got a very broad, I listen to, Lots of different kinds of music, and I, I'm happy to watch any film in any genre. I mean, I watched Barbie recently, and I watched um, Oppenheimer, and you know, as everyone did. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I'm happy to watch anything or engage with Book, books. I'm a bit more of a stickler because it's you know, for me, it's quite a precious time. But you know, reading is I, I have so little time to read. Um, a little life's probably the last book that that it took me a long time to. Was it a little life? Yeah, the, uh, I think that's what it was yeah. called. Yes. Yeah, very difficult book, but very somehow, difficult. somehow exhilarating to read. I mean, I read like Shaggy Bane again quite recently. I found it very painful to read. I mean, obviously brilliantly written, but difficult and relentless. Whereas a little life is even darker. But, yes. But it's. I think the, there's an innocence, a sweetness about that central character that. That somehow and you want him to survive, and it's a book that doesn't put any punches, but very powerful. Yeah. 
do you ever allow yourself a little bit of fluff in the reading arena? Because those are two very heavy books <laughs> that you've you've made. Do you, do you ever just read a little fluffy nonsense? Not really, not really. But I'll, I'll if if I'm doing that, I'll watch a movie. You know, oh. I mean, I'll. I mean, I, I watch a lot of crime stuff. You know, I love all that. You know, Nordic stuff or whatever. And I look, I love a good Hollywood movie. You know, I, I, so for me, that's sort of more relaxing. It's also more communal because I'll do it with my wife or my family or whatever. And it's, yeah, I mean, I get very little time to read. So that's usually I've usually got a reason to read that thing. Okay. Well, Craig, we hope that everybody looks up your books and buys them and reads them. And we are very much looking forward to. The Ghost of Sam Webster. Very Have I got much. the title right? Yes, yes. And it'll be available in at the beginning of September. It'll be yeah. in stores. Yeah, from the 1st of September, yeah. So that is something very much to be looked forward to. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much. Gail, I had so much more to ask Craig. I had a whole bunch of questions prepared about the book of gifts, but unfortunately we ran out of time. I think he's one of those authors that we could have back for a, a second go round. Absolutely. One could talk to him all day. And I just found so much he said resonated with me, which is quite unexpected because we write very different sorts of books. But so much of what he said about process just completely resonated with me. So I was very inspired by that. Yeah, that bit about the water sort of trickling through and finding its level and that they, they, you just find a time to you write. You find a time to write. I think that was one of the things I took out of it that, that resonated, you know, that people say I'm too busy to write mm-hmm. and I just don't buy into that. I'm sorry anyone listening who has ever said that. I'm sorry, but I don't buy what you're selling. Mm-hmm. You find the time to write if you want to write. I mean, look at look at Craig writing in his car before the school day starts. Yes, exactly. If he can do it, we can all do it. And Gail, he mentioned a handful of gold dust, and I saw you light up and make a note. <laughs> Was that something else you took from him? Yeah, it, it, for me, I talked before we started about going to the day job first and being distracted by the emails and getting sucked into it. And I'm using my gold dust in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And mm. I've got to become more conscious of keeping my gold dust for what's precious to me. Yes. So that for me, really, it was a big thing. And I do think we have a finite amount of creative energy in any given day. So, so use it for what is precious. It doesn't mean you don't have other types of energy that you can't do anything else. Craig has a very busy, very productive day, and I think maybe has different types of gold dust. But mm-hmm. I'm going to take that. I've got to be careful with my gold dust. What did you take out? Well, I lit up like a Christmas tree when he started <laughs> mentioning Christmas trees because I think it might actually be the answer to what I raised at the beginning about feeling as though um, – I'm, I'm losing the thread or I'm losing mm-hmm. inspiration because I'm writing in little bits and pieces. And maybe in some way I'm letting my Christmas tree lights go out and then they don't want to spark up again. Mm. So I think my writing advice is something that I'm going to try and follow myself this week, which is just to stay a little bit more focused. Don't try and split your energy up into too many parts. Each project deserves a bit of concerted focus of its own. So I'm going to try that this week. And what about you? 
You sound a bit like the, the shoemaker not making shoes for his own children <laughs> there. So my advice, because I'm deep in an editing process, is it's made me think a lot about how vital editing is. Not only editing yourself, which which is important, but much more is being edited by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I I know... People can be resistant to being edited. Yes. They can take it as a criticism. And self-published writers often cut corners on the editing process. They think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. my friend's dad was an English teacher. I'll get him to read over it. Right. That's not being edited unless your friend's dad was also an editor and you have paid him to be an editor and he's going to do a proper job on editing your book. And I just think it's something, you know, it's an end of project piece of advice rather than a beginning of project piece of advice. Mm-hmm. But so important that you you have to be open to the editing process. I'm remembering last week when we um, interviewed Echo Duca and he said how much he enjoys that yes. and how much he looks forward to it. And I think that really is the mindset to approach it with. Absolutely. And I, for me, it's, it's 100% true. I love being edited. I would hate to write without being edited, but I don't believe one can. I don't. I think you, the best writer in the world will not produce a good book without being edited. I quite agree. So if you have read the works of Craig Higginson and if you have been in grade 11 or matric recently, you most certainly have, please get in touch. Let us know how you responded to his books. Also, if you have tips on conserving your creative energy or preserving your focus, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us or you can contact us on all social media across the board. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.